everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Roald Dahl Retrospective, where we took a look at all the adaptations of Roald Dahl's shorts and books. I am Patricia. I am Aaron. And uh, we have ourselves a very special guest with us. So uh, we have the founder of Manic Expression, and he has his own series on YouTube called James Talks DVDs. We have James Walsh. Welcome, James. Thanks for having me. So yeah, today we're going to be discussing about the 1995 anthology comedy film, Four Rooms. You know, very similar to when we did, were discussing about uh, 36 Hours and Breaking Point. Now we have to include Four Rooms into this because one of the shorts from Roald Dahl was adapted. So I have to say, this is a very unusual film considering that... You know, I mean, I can understand for an anthology film, you know, they have like different vignettes focusing on four different directors showing off their um, their skills and their writing abilities. But wow, I mean, I actually have no words for this one. I do. But uh, I want to get a couple of minutes into the video because I don't want to be demonetized with that's one of my uh, opinions. Uh, oh, don't worry. If, 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 if you're, you know, explicit terms... You know, don't, you know, demonetize this podcast. And when we talk about the last short, it definitely will. But yeah, so right before we discuss about um, this particular movie. So James, uh, what are you, what is your history with uh, any adaptations based off of Roald Dahl? Really, the only one that I can think of is my, uh, my daughters and I used to watch James and the Giant Peach okay. a lot. The motion one. Oh, nice. And... Uh, yeah, that was sort of a favorite when they were growing up. Mm-hmm. So very familiar with that. Never really cared much for Willy Wonka. I didn't really see it as a kid. So, uh, but yeah, James and the Giant Peach would be the that'd be the only one. Okay, that's fair. So yeah, so yeah, let's talk about this movie. series focusing on a bellhop by the name of Ted and he's the bellhop of a hotel by the name of Hotel Monsignor in Los Angeles during New Year's Eve. So it focuses on four different stories based off of the people who are staying in the hotel and it features four different writers and directors. There's Allison Anders, Alexandra Rockwell, Robert Rodriguez, and Quentin Tarantino. It was at a time in which when indie filmmakers were starting to become really popular in Hollywood. You know, people such as the likes of, you know, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez were producing their stuff out there, such as, um, you know, like, From Dust Till Dawn and Pulp Fiction, and it started getting a lot of people you know, interested in what else they can be able to do. And not to mention that Alison Anders was making a name for herself because she had did a film called Gas Food Lodging, and at the time she did Mi Vida Loca. And then there was um, Alexandre Rockwell, who he was being known at the time for producing a film. Um, I think it was called uh, 
was it Sons or something like that? But yeah, for the most part, these four independent directors came on by to do this anthology film. When this movie came out in 1995, the, the critics tore this movie to shreds because they said it was just a massive disappointment and an overall convoluted mess of a film. So even still to this day, it has a pretty low rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And most people don't really remember this film outside side of, you know, if they do know about it, then it'll be like, it's that film that Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino were involved in that nobody really talks about. Who wants to remember this besides us? <laughs> I know, right? It's like I had to dig deep into the crevices of obscure Roald Dahl adaptations so we could be able to talk about this film. Let's just be honest with everybody here. This is the biggest pile of shit that I've ever had to be sat in front of in my entire life. I've wasted $3 on this movie, and $3 I could have given to a homeless person, $3 I could have given to charity, $3 I probably could have done various other things with. But no, uh, I had to spend it on this pile of crap. Yeah, and, and you know what? And I thought that Breaking Point was bad. <laughs> we made fun of Breaking Point, but oh my goodness, this is an Oscar-winning performance compared to, uh, you know, what we've just seen today. Well, I mean, let's just start with the entire presentation of what they're trying to achieve here. This whole thing looks like a Looney Tunes thing uh, with 18 rating, and it's just, it sounds like probably the worst parts of Looney Tunes, the worst parts of Nickelodeon, and the worst parts of uh, various other cartoon-related things. Probably the worst parts of Ren and Stimpy as well. Like, it's just, it's just, it's gross out humor, and it's just, it's not, it's not funny. Yeah, you know, it, it really isn't funny at all. It's really awful and painful to watch. And, you know, like, uh, the only thing that kind of outstands to me, at least the part that I watch it, let me tell you this. Um, for those of the people who do not know, I famously watched uh, Captain Underpants, the first movie, and only managed to send for a half an hour through this, and then I turned it off. Now, to be fair to uh, this movie... I sat through 44 minutes of this movie and then turned it off. So at least I can say that this movie kept my attention far much than Captain Underpants, the first movie ever did for DreamWorks. But uh, still, it still felt like it's one of those situations where I will watch this movie once and I will never, ever, 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 ever watch it again. And I will warn everyone away from this movie whenever I can, man. Yeah. Like, you know, it was, uh, this thing was painful to watch. And this all the whole presentation of it all, as well, like, it's just the fact that it goes for shock value. The fact that it's, like, got kids doing, like, you know, stabbing each other with, like, needles and, uh, you know, smoking and, like, all this other uh, stuff that he puts up on the screen. It's like, it's just, it's, uh, I'm trying to find a really good comparison for it, but I can't. All I can say is it's just, it's just a big, massive mess. And, you know, whoever's, you know, whoever made this mess, I think should be responsible for cleaning it up as far as I'm concerned. Well, I mean, since it is a hotel, I guess it's very appropriate. Oh, well, there's been funny hotel movies, okay? I would even go as far as, say, Dunstan checks in, had some funny moments compared to, uh, you know, what we had here with the... Uh, uh, with uh, with this, and uh, yeah, I'm sure there's some throwaway gags from the Sweet Life of Zack and Cody that uh, probably had some, uh, you know, funny moments. Well, compared don't to forget, the... we just saw the witches last time, and that took place in a hotel. Yeah, and uh, mind you, it was uh, I mean, before Rowan Atkinson. I probably say that movie as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, no, it's, it's uh, yeah, but to me, it's just it's. Uh, I can't believe that four people wasted their time with this movie. And the fact that one of them is Quentin Tarantino, who is known to basically take, you know, chicken shit and turn it into chicken salad sometimes, which some of the you know, concepts that he deals with. Like, you know, I still like uh, the one, I still like some of his uh, 
uh, movies with Samuel Jackson. And I think when they get together, I think it's really cool. Mm -hmm. But uh, I just think that in this instance, I just think, you know, uh, I mean, what's Samuel L. Jackson have rescued this? Really? I, I, you mean, you know, to be quite honest, I mean, I, I don't think so. I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of celebrities in this movie. I mean, you have Antonio Banderas, you have Jennifer Beals, you have Sammy Davis, you have Madonna, Marissa yeah. Tomei. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, celebrities that are like, they're not just like, you know, oh, they're just like one-off celebrities that don't really do much. I mean, we're talking about like, you know, A-list celebrities back then. And... You know, I, I think that it's due to the writing that, you know, if the writing is not able to do well, then, you know, basically, you know, the the actors don't really have a lot to work with. So, do you know, let's talk about the first scene, shall we? Like, I mean, doesn't it, doesn't it look to you that the group of women that we're, we're confronted with all had a massive dispute with the director about, you know, whether they all wanted to go topless? Don't you look at that and think, wow, some women were open to do it and other women weren't? Mm -hmm. You know, it looks like a, you know, it makes no sense. Um, this whole witches thing is garbage, as far as I'm concerned. It's like it's, it has no rhyme or reason to it, and uh, it's all just to kind of like tear the fact that oh hey, we need to get this jizz out of this guy. You know, like uh, so it's just it's uh, to me it's just it's uh, building all up to basically you know a gag that they don't really do too much with. It's like it's a cut scene later, and all of a sudden this jizz is out. You know, it's just it's like it's uh, so that's a that's a wasted thing. Yeah. So as... what Aaron is referring to is the very first short. It's called The Missing Ingredient, and it takes place in the honeymoon suite. Oh, I'll tell you what the missing ingredient is. It's actually any plot or any like any decency to this movie. That's what's missing here, man. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, um, yeah, so basically the plot of the movie is that there's a group of women who come by to the hotel, and he's checking them into the honeymoon suite, and they just turn out to be a coven of witches, because of course it is, I mean, we haven't been, you know, it's not like we've gone through witches in a hotel, you know, all, you know, we haven't done that before, but no, instead of, like, wanting to buy all the sweet shops so that they can be able to, you know, get rid of all the children, no, they, they want something else, and wow! I have I I just I'm speechless like I I don't even know what to say well I have plenty to say it's it's garbage <laughs> like it's just it's uh, oh it's just it's, it's just a waste of imagination right. really well, it's like you know, I mean we, we left James quiet for like 10 minutes so let's just let him talk about this so what do you have to say about this this movie sucks <laughs> 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 Perfect. You, I mean, you know, thank you, James, for coming on. Okay, never mind. Yeah, please go ahead. I'm sorry. When you messaged me and asked me, you know, you said uh, how familiar I was with Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. I thought, oh, we're going to talk about Grindhouse or we're going to talk about From Dust Till Dawn. And you said four rooms, and I was like, really? Yeah. yeah. Under normal circumstances, I would have never talked about this movie, but because. It, you know, one of the shorts happened to have been adapted from Roald Dahl. And I checked, by the way, for those who are wondering, why do you have to talk about this movie? It's like, I checked the credits, and Roald Dahl's name is in it. Or after he died. This well, was, this was just... five years after his death. So, yeah, this came out but in 1995. He, he probably never would have agreed, along with I me. Mean, let's basically, let's safely say this. If you never agreed to Willy Wonka, and you never agreed to other movie adaptations, with the exception of the BFG, you know, which is the one where he actually led the standing ovation in the theatre for, you know, when that movie came out, Cosgrove Hall gave him a sense that, you know, there might be something to salvage 
from, you know, uh, the movie industry. And then all of that was torn down when The Witches came out. You know, like, uh, you know, to me, I think he probably would have done exactly the same thing with this movie. He would have said, nope, you ain't putting my name anywhere near it. But hey, you know, now that he's not there anymore, he, there's no way he can, you know, object to that being a thing. Yeah, exactly. So, and I don't even think that Lissy Doll even knows about this movie's existence. Uh, I don't think they even do because, you know, as mentioned before, you know, the first movie that, you know, she would be a part of would be James and the Giant Peach, which is a movie we'll talk about another time. No, we're not talking about it next time because we got something else and oh man, that's going to be another acid trip. But no, um, we, but no, she, um, you know, she was involved with, um, you know, executive producing of James and the Giant Peach and Matilda, the 2005 um, version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and then finally Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, oh. And so she, we know that she was involved with those movies. As for this one, I completely doubt it. I just think that, you know, oh, um, you know, let's just do, you know, because that Roald Dahl was known for his shorts uh, that were geared towards adults, as we mentioned before when we were talking about 36 Hours and when we were talking about Breaking Point, that you know, a lot of his shorts were geared for more adults. And one of them we'll be talking about last is his most, one of his most famous shorts. But yeah, let's, let's, yeah. So basically bottom line for the missing ingredient, uh, oh my, just no, no, don't even bother with this one. Okay, let's talk about the next one, which um, is uh, called The Wrong Man. And in this one... So, the bellhop finds himself in a hostage situation. And, you know, he gets... You know, basically, he's, you know, forced at gunpoint. And he has to, you know, say the words ice and, you know, just constantly saying the word ice. And it's... You know, basically, you have, like, you know, this crazy couple. And, you know, it kind of makes you wonder about, like, is this supposed to be, like, a psychological thing that they're going through? But, yeah, this one was another weird one. I I don't remember. It was was a poorly written, you know, shock fest. That's all it was. Like, you know, it's just, it's, uh, you know, it makes me wonder what would happen if Lloyd Crofman got involved. And, like, said, you know, well, you know, okay, you're going to do all the gross humor, but kind of, like, make it where it has to make some kind of sense. You know, like, uh, you know, the the to- Toxic Avenger wasn't like, you know, just, uh, you know, some some guy who just does gross out things for no reason. Like, you know, he uh, ended up getting made radioactive and, uh, you know, was uh, made into the Toxic Avenger. He didn't just randomly appear like that, you know. And it just makes me feel, this is the thing about some of the elements in all of this is that uh, they just randomly come out of nowhere. Like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the, um, the the guy with the gun turns gay and kisses him and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, like, you know, this woman um, is having this argument about, you know, being gagged and things like that. Like, I wasn't really following at this point. I basically just kind of like, you know, started zoning out because it was like, you know, it's just, this is all just a bunch of noise. You know, and all just a bunch of, uh, you know, nonsense that's on the screen. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it didn't, it, it's one of the movies that didn't capture my attention. Like, you know, uh, at least I can say with a good dinosaur, that, you know, even though that was, you know, quite plain, at least it sort of grasped my attention. A lot of other things that we've seen in the past, you know, in other series, I can say grasped my attention. This, you know, probably with the exception of probably Shrek Forever After, I think probably like, uh, you know, this is one of the movies that just made me from the get go just zone out and just, yeah. you know. I think that if it, the, either the first or the second one are the worst ones, for sure. I think it's just all bad. Well, I mean, sure, <laughs> they all suck, don't get me wrong, but 
I would yeah. say that the first half, like the first two ones, are the least bad. They're the worst ones. Like they're just incredibly shocking, and then they 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 just they're just that. I mean, they're they're just shocking for the sake of being shocking. And here's the thing, like. I think that these, you know, I can understand, you know, somebody like, you know, Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino being able to take it, you know, into full strides in that case, because, you know, they've done so with like Grindhouse and a whole bunch of other, you know, homages to movies and such. But these two directors at the time didn't really work with that kind of material. You know, they were known for indie films, but not those kind of indie films. Like, you know, for example, Gas Food Lodging, which is the movie that Alison Anders was known for, it was based off of an adult novel and it was more dramatic. Well, as for, you know, the movie that Alexandri uh, Rockwell was working on, In the Soup, that's what it was called. Um, yeah, it was just uh, another period piece. But yeah, I mean, like, for the most part, yeah, I mean, like, these, this is this is definitely like, you know, you're bringing in two directors who are known for like dramatic stuff and more down to earth and more grounded and you're trying to put in like some sort of wacky, over the top, shocking, grueling, violent, just disgusting material. It's It just doesn't work. Yeah, do you know that, uh, you know, in Bucky O'Hare and the Toad Wars, he's actually a uh, face of a warm-blooded, freedom-loving man on the anniversary uh, uh, is in his paws. And why did I bring that up? Well, I'm just following the theme of the movie, just bringing you random shit. That's basically what it is, you know? So, mm -hmm. like, uh, so. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts on this one, James? What are your thoughts on the wrong man? They, I, I don't. I, I, I always got the feeling from the movie that it, they were building up to Tarantino, because the segments all felt kind of out of order. You, you build to the witches. You don't start with the witches. You build to that, because otherwise you're setting the movie up to be kind of supernatural. And then nothing else ever like that happens again. Um, I mean, even with the witches, there wasn't really much to build to, to be quite honest with you. I mean, like, I would not have really cared at that point I, where they would have came in at that point, like whether they came first, second, third, fourth, or a thousandth. You know, it's I, like, I, uh, to me, the whole thing was my ass. If you want to put the blame on anybody for this movie, I feel like you put the blame on Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, I mean, that is very true because, you know, I mean, this is a Miramax film and you know that they're done by the Weinstein Company. So great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, oh, you know, pension would have been pretty new. Um, and I don't think any of these directors yet had the clout to say no. Yeah, that's true, because they were still brand new. Like, you know, Robert Rodriguez, um, you know, he was still doing... Um, you know, he was still starting off with his movies as well. You know, he only did Mariachi, Road Racers, and Desperado, which came out the same year. And then Tarantino was Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. And then uh, for the other, you know, for like Allison Anders and Alexandre Rockwell, yeah, I mean, they were just starting off as well. So you have four brand new, you know, independent directors and writers who are just getting their names out there. And they were like, hey, you know, you want to be able to build up your reputation more? Let's see if you can be able to work together on this film. It's, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, if, yeah, I think that, yeah, they, they were just starting out. They were still brand new and they wouldn't get a lot of experience until like a little bit later on. But still, it's just like. I, I guess in everyone's defense, I guess you could say they were still, you know, cutting their teeth in the industry. I guess you could say when all of this, uh, 
craziness was going on. But I mean, I guess you could say there's far worse examples of people coming into, you know, saying that they can, they know what's going on on a movie set. I mean, uh, let's, as of recording, uh, Sylvester Stallone right now is up for a Razzie with one of the most beloved franchises in action history which is Rambo. I guess you could say, in its defense, uh, some people who walked into this movie had some, you know, rustiness to them. They didn't have, like, the political clout to say no. I guess you could say in this. I mean, there's other directors out there who, uh, or these actors or whoever have shot their own movies and have no freaking clue what's going on despite the fact that they probably spent maybe a decade or more on a movie studio and had a grip of what's going on, but um, it really tells me that there was a lot of inexperience, a lot of you know not being able to to grasp things, not a lot of you know um, pre- pre- not, not a lot of preparation, and not a lot of knowing of what really to do in a particular type of scenario. This movie represents all of this, yeah, I think, for sure. I can't. If we, I mean, this is probably the best thing I'm going to say about this movie is that, you know, given the fact that we've seen far worse examples of things come out from people where you would expect some kind of quality standard here in 2020, I guess to go back to 1995 and say, oh, here's this thing, but everyone was kind of new of what they were doing at the time and they were kind of like trying to find their edge. I mean, I guess you could say, you know, I mean, how, how long would George Lucas in directing before he came up with Howard the Duck, you know, like, uh, he, exactly, like, there's always going to be those directors who, in their heyday, come out with the most reeking stinkers, no doubt about that, but, um, so I guess you could say that Four Rooms is one of those movies, but, uh, you know, I guess in its defense, I guess you could say that in 2020, as the Razzies are going to come up, and as various other Golden Raspberry Award ceremonies have given us over the last decade. I think you could say there's far worse example now in the modern era than there were back in the 90s, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, like, I mean, Tarantino would have been just a few years out of working at a video store. Exactly. And Robert Rodriguez would have been only a few years out of maxing his credit card out to make El Mariachi. So I think both of them were sort of like, we're we're new the boss wants us to do this. I doubt that the movie, that each segment took that long for them to shoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that it was just sort of Harvey Weinstein saying, do this, and then going, all right. To be honest, if this was basically like an independent movie that was like screened in a couple of small community theaters to like, you know, and it was just kind of like some guys just kind of like expressing themselves, like, you know, that type of genre of movie, you know, like uh, where, you know, guys get stoned and lie on the floor and just like watch a cinema screen for, you know, for uh, for hours on end. If it was something like that, I think you say, well, it's for a niche audience and it can't be forgiven. But let, let's face it, this had Antonio Banderas, it had Madonna in it, and they had various other big names uh, attached to this. And so the fact that this was basically put in full daylight in the in front of the movie going public, I mean, like... Uh, uh, I mean, I know we usually save the box office for like you know the end of these things, but I mean, how how well did this thing actually do? It barely made its budget back. This movie cost four million dollars to make, and it only made four million two hundred and fifty-seven thousand three hundred and fifty-four dollars. I rest my case. This movie barely made its budget back. 
I know. It's like it's a it's a it's a public embarrassment. Is what this movie is. What this movie is. Unfortunately, you know. Again, if it was like this edgy kind of like independent film that wasn't supposed to be seen by very many people, I guess you could say it has some kind of like forgiveness to it. But that's not what they were going for here. You could see what they were trying to go for here, and it looked like they took the worst cliches out of movie making in the nineties. Like even the uh, they had the whole like animated like title sequence as well. Which wasn't all that great to look at. Like, it kind of reminded me of, like the Tom and Jerry movie, kind of like, you know, where yeah, they were was like. inspired by the Pink Panther well, cartoons. Well, inspired is a strong term, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, yeah I get what but, you're saying for sure. So, yeah, let's, let's just finish this off. So, the next one is called The Misbehaviors, and this is the one that Robert Rodriguez was working on. And, uh, yeah, you could definitely tell this is a Robert Rodriguez film. So, basically, Antonio Banderas and his wife, played by uh, Tamlin Tomita, they are going over to a New Year's Eve party, and they told the bellhop, hey, you know, we want you to watch over our kids while we're going out to this party. We'll We'll pay you $500. And so, yeah, these kids are like... How would I describe it? They're like the spawns of Satan. Basically that. So, uh, let's see. Uh, The whole hotel room becomes a mess. One of the kids is smoking a cigarette. One of the kids is having a liquor bottle. They're watching an adult channel. There's a dead prostitute. And and of course, the whole thing ends with, uh, you know, the hotel room being set on fire. I look at that, and I think, you know, if you toned it down slightly and you animated it instead, it would have made a good water cartoon shot. You know, like... <laughs> For uh, adults. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, you know, so as far as I'm concerned, it would have, like, hey, and before anyone says, oh, hey, you know, they wouldn't have got away with that uh, on a water cartoon show. In the first appearance of Cow and Chicken, Chicken smoked a cigarette did, as, part yeah. for, as part of the plot for the the uh, the. Di- the uh, for sure. But, uh, so, there was adult-themed stuff in that show. So, something like that, if they basically just said, oh, you know what, we're just going to, you know, t- take the script, um, put it on Cartoon Network, turn it down t- massively so that, uh, you know, all the god crowd don't complain about it and uh, and just be hidden just enough so that, uh, you know, it's, uh, the, uh, the last stoned guy at, like, you know, uh, 11 to midnight... We'll just see it, you know, like uh, that that kind of thing. You know, I think we've probably been talking about it as part of our 90s nostalgia more more than kind of like talking about how much of a dumpster fire it all was, pretty yeah, much. And, uh, I guess so. And, uh, you know, I mean, I guess if you were trying to go for more dark humor, I can definitely see that working if the execution was a lot better. But, yeah, it's like, oh, you know, kids are acting like crazy adults with smoking and drinking and watching, you know, inappropriate stuff on TV and, you know, stabbing somebody, you know, stabbing an adult with a syringe and calling them whore. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, uh, I mean, it's, I was really surprised that Antonio Banderas wasn't, ty- I mean, I guess you could say he was somewhat typecast, I guess, in some particular roles, I guess you could say. I'm really surprised after watching that, and then you watch Spy Kids, and then after you watched, uh, you know, The Mask of Zorro, and things like that, you wouldn't think that, uh, you know, he would have suffered the same fate of, like, you know, like, you know, Adam West or, uh, you know, William Shatner at that point. Like, I know he's had more varied roles in his movie career, but uh, I'm really surprised with this type of track record, you know, with these types of movies kind of blipping in the 90s, I'm really surprised that, you know, he made, you know, somewhat some success out of himself, really. I mean, and like, it wasn't, you, I mean as, of the, as of the recording of this podcast, the, the Oscars just recently aired on TV, and he was nominated for Best Actor 
in Pain and Glory. So yeah, you can, I mean, like, I think that this is going to be one movie he's not going to bring up in his career whatsoever. This movie never gets brought up by anybody. I mean, I watched, uh, there's a, a documentary called, uh, I think it's called QT8, uh, about Quentin Tarantino, and I just watched it a couple weeks ago. And it's basically going over his entire career up to uh, right before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This movie isn't mentioned at all. I don't There's blame them. <laughs> nothing. Nothing about it. it is, it's like a two and a half hour, very extensive look at his career. Nothing is said about this movie. It's kind of like Dwayne Johnson and all the, all the uh, shitty films that he appeared in. Like He appeared in that, uh, what do you call it, that movie about him you know, landing on that planet full of aliens and stuff. And like, that never movie never gets brought up. Yeah. But, you know, like in any Fast and Furious movie, any, uh, you know, any other like big role that he's done, San Andreas, anything else, that's pretty Hollywood spectacular, skyscraper, everything like that, you know, uh, you know Dwayne Johnson... You know, that's, uh, that's at the forefront and like, you know, everything else is like tucked away in the back, you know, tied up in a chair, kicking and screaming and yet no one will ever hear it. Yeah, you know? for sure. All right, let's go over to our feature presentation, the, 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 the short that we were building up to because this is the one that's adapted from a Roald Dahl short. So it's called The Man from Hollywood. And this was done, you know, this is the, um, so this is adapted from a Roald Dahl short called The Man from the South. So for those who don't know what it is, it's about a man named Carlos who is vacationing in a resort in Jamaica. So he decides to um, bring up a bet with somebody saying that, um, you know, uh, what was it going to be? Oh, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, the bet was is that, um, you know, he cannot ignite a lighter 10 times. And he says this in front of an American. And if he does not light it, that means he gets to cut off a finger. And basically, um, you know, it, it shows off in the end of the short that he has done this so many times because he is actually a psychotic maniac. And uh, yeah, so basically at the end of it, the American has only one finger left. So they, yeah, this has actually been adapted into a, um, a segment in uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Tales of the Unexpected. So I guess because of that, because it's so twisted and demented, it's like, hey, you know, Quentin Tarantino can do that because, you know, he did a movie where it involved with somebody getting an ear cut off. So why not have one involving with getting some, some fingers getting chopped off? Because, yeah, sure, why not? So well, that is that that scene was iconic and this thing's a pile of shit. Between <laughs> these two things. You know, a minute 44, minute 44 of this movie, I switched off. You know, yeah. so uh, you have to forgive me, everybody. I know, I, 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 because I think the way that you guys are going to describe it in the next couple of minutes is going to turn me completely off it and think, hey, I've dodged a bullet. You know, like I've decided not to torture myself for uh, one time for, uh, you know, a good 45 minutes. I decided, you know, something I've seen this now. I've seen all the prerequisites. I kind of get an idea of what we're up here for. You know, as far as I'm concerned, it's like, you know, you come with the party, go to the party, you know everyone in that party is crazy. You know everyone's on crack. You know everybody's uh, dr drinking into stupidity. You know the police are coming. You know everyone's going to get dragged out of the room and arrested and charged and God knows what else. You leave. You get out of there as soon as you can. And at minute 44 before this whole thing kicked off with this guy... Cutting his fingers off or whatever he was going to do. It was going to win a car. 
Exactly. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, I hope I never see it. I hope I never will. So you guys can take the floor on this. I feel right now I consider myself relieved. Okay. So, yeah, basically it has Tarantino star in it as a man named Chester. And it takes place in a penthouse. So they decided that they're going to uh, do this little challenge involving with a guy named Norman. So that's one of their friends. And very similar to the original short, he makes a bet that he can be able to light up this uh, lighter ten times in a row. And if he wins, he gets the car. But if he loses, he gets a finger chopped off. And, you know, he's like, yeah, sure, why not? And so basically, um, you know, as time goes on, you know, basically, you know, he try. basically as time goes on, like, it just gets even more and more demented because, you know, he tries to, like... You know, he tries to leave, but then he's, like, offering him, like, a few hundred dollars at a time to go up to a thousand dollars. And you know, then, you basically, you know, he tries lighting it, and the fi- the finger gets cut off, and then he takes the money, and then he just leaves the penthouse. And, you know, they basically, you know, the whole end of the movie is like, oh, you know, because they cut off the guy's finger off, it's like, now we need to take him over to the hospital. So, yeah. Uh, nothing was achieved. Nothing was achieved. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, um, this particular one, I had to get a counter for how many times they say the F word. They said it almost 180 times. Like, imagine how... Here's the thing. This short is not very long. It's like, what, like 20-something minutes long or 25? And they say the F word almost... You know, a hundred and eighty something times. It, well, it's unbelievable. The short value is gone. You know, like at this point, like uh, everyone knows the, uh, the 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 whole thing's gone off the rails at this point. And so, like as far as I'm concerned, like they're just trying to throw anything they can at this point. They're getting desperate. You know, they're trying to get a laugh. They're trying to get something, anything. You know, uh, any reaction out of people, and it just isn't working. You know, it just doesn't work. And uh, it's just, it's, uh, I, I'm just uh, amazed that uh, no one looked back at all of this, uh, you know, from when the scenes were being filmed, from when they all walked away, from when they all went to the bar, from when they went back to the post-production studio, from when they started editing the movie, when they started cutting things out, when they started leaving things in, uh, when they had the final product, when they did the test screening. I'm assuming, well, I don't think there's been test screenings, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Like, surely there must have been some kind of, you know, if there were test screenings, I guarantee you that movie would not have been released. But uh, it's just, it's, uh, yeah, um, somewhere, somewhere down the line, someone should have said, stood there and said, no, you know, we need to do this again. Or we need to not go this direction. Or we need to retain some control. There's none of that here. There's none of that here. At all. I, th- I think that they were all... They, they, may, they might not have had clout as directors at the time, but they all had hot movies at the time, and so it was it was sort of let them do whatever they want. Let them... Uh, I mean, Tarantino, the, the, the ego that's on display in this segment, him, him being the movie star and Bruce Willis just sort of being there in the background... Uh, and Tarantino basically proving why he should never be the lead in anything. Where he can he can pop into Desperado for five minutes, 
and maybe get some laughs. But him being the lead character in that gets annoying fast. It does. And, um, and we haven't even talked about Tim Roth. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I mean, Tim, Tim Roth is the main character in this because he is in all four of the shorts because he's the bellhop. Well, it's just, it's, uh, I, I can see where he's trying to go with it. I think he is trying to be that Roger Rabbit, that um, that kind of like that crazy character, uh, trying to entertain everybody in the audience. And uh, it is a disaster to watch. He tries far too hard at what he's trying to do. Um, he thinks he's making everybody laugh. He ain't. And uh, the, you know, he has no chemistry with anybody on the screen and uh he you know he, he's not short of like people to work with here he's working with antonio banderas uh madonna had some kind of acting ability you know at that time you know so some people praise her for a performance in uh, you know in dick tracy the movie you know but uh, you know it's uh, but in regards to you know, he was—he had a lot of hands he could hold on to, and instead he batted them away and just started to act like Daffy Duck, you know, and uh, started to kind of like stick out like a soft thumb. Not to say everyone else wasn't doing too, but uh, I just think that you know, seeing him there was just obnoxious, man. Like yeah. it's just—it like, it sounded like uh, you know his direction was minimal at best, and I think he was just trying to go on his own tangent, and to me, it didn't work at all. And the, the thing that he needed was uh, a proper kind of like an agreement amongst all the people who were putting all these segments together of like who this character was, uh, the situation he was going to go into and everything else in that regard. It almost felt like a Looney Tunes cartoon that kind of like was being passed from director to director. Like, you know, like this was going like through like all these different people, like, you know, uh, um, the Warner Brothers themselves was no longer like, you know, the the people in charge, you know, it was... Uh, it was like kind of like seeing being things being thrown from like you know the uh, the forties, the fifties, the sixties, to the seventies, to the eighties, to the nineties. You know, it was just it was just kind of like this whole you know shift change uh, that was going on, and uh, there was no little it was even consistency to the character. Like he started off as like this timid guy, and then all of a sudden, like he just he, he just he just, all of a sudden he's just this uh, you know this hothead. All of a sudden, that just kind of comes flips and comes out of nowhere. Like, it's just, it's, I get that they're trying to build to the fact that he's losing his mind, you know, obviously being the bellhop all on his own and stuff like that. And, like, you know, I can see where they're going off in there. But that's okay for a five-minute cartoon. It's not okay for a, a, a one-and-a-half-hour movie. Yeah. Now, here's it the thing. I can old. understand, you know, right. that transition that you were mentioning before, because let's just say that, you know, he was a very timid bellhop who had to, like, just simply do his job. But because the people that he was checking in, whether it be the witches, whether it be the crazy couple, whether it be the demonic children or whether it be, oh, you know, this huge bet that was going on with, like, you know, saying, hey, you're going to get a car in exchange, for, you know, if, you know, if you light this lighter, but if you lose, I'm going to chop your finger. So it's like, I'm sure that, you know, it would have been interesting if, like, he slowly started going into insanity to the point in which he's just as crazy as the people he was checking in himself. I mean, if but, I you know, be- the world doesn't allow him to do that. The world, he just kind of blends in with the world, which is already crazy enough. So he doesn't really stand out as that. You know, if they, if they played it like, you know, this was all going on in his head. Like, he thought, oh, hey, wait a second. These women sound like they're witches, you know. They're doing kind of all this weird stuff. And then there's like, it's like a wholly innocent explanation for it all. You know, kind of like, you know, it's just, do you know what's missing out of this? John Cleese. You know, like, uh, the, the, like this, this whole 
British style of comedy. You know, the whole Monty Python, this whole... They've done this world already, you know, several decades ago in this small country called England, you know, where I'm standing here, sitting in right now. You know, we've done this type of comedy before. And not one person thought, hey, you know, we're kind of doing this shit too. You know, maybe we could probably look at Monty Python, look at Life of Brian, look at, uh, you know, uh, the, the Holy Grail. Maybe look at this kind of like this genre that we're looking like we're trying to edge towards. And maybe then we could, uh, you know, establish something here and probably put it along that line and maybe give people some kind of like, you know, a sense of like what this world is and what's going on. And that's another thing it, it lacks as well. Just like it's uh, this, uh, at least you can say, you know, we can, you know, we know how random Monty, Monty Python is, but it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, Pink Floyd without the seriousness. You know, like without the message, you know, it's just kind of like he's just throwing it out there and uh, throwing all this imagery at us and uh, all this craziness at us. And, uh, you know, and uh, mixing in what they thought, oh, hey, you know, uh, it's like it's kind of like the rejected skits out of a Monty Python sketch or a rejected skits out of like, you know, uh, something that, you know, that uh, that team of guys in Monty Python probably would have done. And they said, oh, yeah, well, we've got all these rejected ideas. Let's, you know, let's, uh, let's go quick. Quentin Tarantino on the phone and, like, you know, let's tease him with these parts. And then he comes kind of around and said, oh, hey, I can make a movie out of this. Yeah. You know? Right, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, let's just wrap things up. So I can completely understand why critics bashed this movie when it first came out. They said it was just, like, a missed opportunity, massively disappointed, a waste of potential of amazing people who had brought their names out there only to combine together to make this mess. And, you know, I guess, you know... I don't know if it really, like, ruined the careers of any of them very much. I mean, I just think that there was just, like, one little blip of a mistake that they just decided to sweep under the rug. And they were like, let's pretend that this thing never happened. Because, you know, pretty much, you know, they all went off to do much better things. I mean, like, Quentin Tarantino, like, going back into the Oscars again, you know, his movie, you know, know, was uh, nominated for Oscars. So, yeah, I mean, like... It, you, that just goes to show you that, you know, even if you make, like, one little mistake on your career, you can be able to bounce back on it and do something better. So, you know, here's the thing about this, like, every single actor, you know, and I definitely, those, those that we saw on the Oscars last night, you know, to, to this day, we could definitely say at least one person in that crowd has done a terrible movie. That's, that's just a fact of acting. Like, you're never going to always land on your feet. Every time you, uh, you know, you find yourself in, uh, you know, uh, a movie in a movie set, you know, there's likelihood is that you've jumped into a movie into a movie role, and the, you just happen to be there. You sign the contract, the ink, the ink's now dried on the paper, and now you're stuck with it, you know, and uh, that's where you have to be, you know, and or else you're not going to, you know, earn the money, and you're not going to be able to, you know, buy your car and buy your, you know get those upgrades to your house and stuff like that you know exactly. like so you know uh, unfortunately whether we like it or not we all, all our favorite actors every single one of our favorite actors has had a shit movie and that's just the reality of it Pretty and uh, and four rooms is that type of movie where you can say oh hey you know antonio banderas i love him to death but oh my god that room was fucking terrible that four rooms movie was fucking terrible yeah and so and this, is hands d- this is hands down this is hands down the worst thing we've seen so far like you know we've had our problems with breaking point and danny the champion of the world like we had issues with it but no no i mean like those movies are saints compared to this unholy abomination 
I can't believe we're actually praising a Turner Classic movie. I really can't. I know, right? Like, oh man, like Ted Turner and the Weinstein Company. It's like, oh yeah, let's do that. The worst of the worst. Mm-hmm. Oh God! I, I remember watching this because I I I was old enough to be uh, really into indie movies at the time and and really enjoying that scene when it was happening. And I love Tim Roth. I think Tim Roth is an amazing actor. And I don't know what anybody was thinking with the the just everything about it was wrong. Yeah. Just, I think to me it was like the the actors who you know lacked direction were just kind of like just railing around and just trying to do whatever they could. You know, you saw actors like Antonio Banderas, and you could tell that he was basically just gone into autopilot. He was just doing Antonio Banderas. He does what he does in kind of every other movie. He does that spiel in Spy Kids. He does that spiel in Mask of Zorro. He does that spiel in uh, various others. Like, again, I'm very surprised he wasn't typecast. You know, he's got managed to actually uh, diversify and play other roles in his career. But, uh, you know, you can tell that the people who have the experience were just basically just going off their experience of being actors in other roles. While everyone else who was kind of like stepping in, like uh, with very little experience, you could tell from the get-go, they were like a deer in headlights. They didn't know what to do. And the directors did not help them one single bit. Yeah. Like, you could, I mean, this is one of those classic examples about a movie that was doomed from the start. Like... You have four directors who were told to write shorts that were all com- that were, had to collide together, and they had like different distinct styles of writing, but they all had to be together. They had to be cohesive. So let's just say, hey, we need to, you know, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez are getting popular. Let's see if we can kind of like do their style, but in a demented way. And so they were like, yeah, sure. And then the actors, they had no direction. The story had no direction. So. I mean, it was like everything just, yeah, you're, you're right what you said earlier, James. Everything about this movie is just wrong. Like, nothing good come in, I mean, there's nothing good about this movie. Like, seriously, this is one of the worst things I've ever seen. I, I am so sorry that I actually had to dig this up because we had to watch it for the Roald Dahl <laughs> retrospective. Like, I hate myself right now. No worry, baby. You can make it up for when I come to Florida. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but seriously, like, I mean, I don't really like to leave. Here's the thing about this. Like, uh, I mean, I feel bad that we've gone through this whole episode of negativity, but I kind of feel like I want to leave on a more, I guess, a bit more of a positive note. And that is that at least we can say that no one was kind of harmed in this movie. I guess Very you could true. Say. Yeah, I mean, we talked about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, in which you know there was some, you know, issues with that, and you know we talked about, um, you know, like, uh, you know, the witches, in which like you could actually see like tails of mice being really chopped off. So, sure, you know, we can argue that nobody oh. got hurt in this movie. Well, I mean, in the sense of like acting, you know, like this didn't like stain their acting careers for like you know you know years and years and years on end. Like you know, uh, we talk about like how the you know the, how epic Star Wars was back in the seventies. Like you know, every single like. Uh, uh, you know, um, Star Wars fan that I seem to come across who can get started like on the prequels and the uh, and the recent sequels, and they kind of like uh, turn into like this kind of drunken sports fan, like saying like, "Oh, how we won major trophies back in the seventies! Like we were the team then." And like, uh, but then you really think about it, 
there were really no were big winners that came out of Star Wars when you really think about it. Mark Hamill uh, struggled to get out until he finally found his role as the Joker in Batman the Animated Series. Um, then you had, uh, you know, the only person who really kind of like survived was Harrison Ford and thankfully he had Indiana Jones and he had other roles to kind of like fall back on, you know, so he wasn't, you know, always going to be f uh, stuck with Han Solo in, true, in that. Yeah. And then there was other... Uh, you know, Jerry Fisher, I think, didn't go on to be any other significant actor besides being Princess Leia. So, well, like, to be uh, fair, to be fair she, did, she did go through her struggles with, you know, alcohol and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, okay, fair enough. But, uh, I mean, uh, you know, Star Wars is considered this big, epic classic of cinema, you know, in the eyes of the people who all wear Stormtrooper helmets go marching around Comic-Con. But, uh, you know, uh, in regards to, like, uh, at least we can say that the four rooms had less of an impact on people's acting careers than the Star Wars trilogy ever did. That's true, yeah. So, yeah, basically, you know, where the Star Wars trilogy, the original Star Wars trilogy, not the prequels or the recent ones, where, yeah, I, I guess you could, I can understand that. You know, the four rooms essentially came out... And it was critically panned and then pretty much just became forgotten really quickly. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, like, everybody who worked on this movie, I mean, with the exception of the Weinstein brothers, but, we, you know, that's beside the point. But uh -huh. for the most part, you know, a lot of people who did work on this movie went off to do bigger and better things. So we can say that this is just a blip in the in the... Holly in Hollywood's industry that nobody will talk about and let's just stop talking about it actually so yeah um, I just want to yeah I know okay we all swore a secrecy we will never ever mention this in public again yes first rule about the Roald Dahl retrospective never talk about four rooms <laughs> I didn't even remember the movie existed until you brought it in. Yes, I know. I know. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry for you, man. Now, like, uh, next time we bring you in for another another broadcast, we're going to have to talk about something more positive, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I, I owe you for that. Let's let's let you select the topic. And if you want to come on the Aaron Mesa show, if you want to come back on Old School Lane, we'll talk about that instead. And uh, we'll probably have a happier time with it. So uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. That's good. All yeah. right, so yeah, James, thank you so much for dealing with this crap. I really do appreciate it. Yep, thank you for having me. So yeah, where can people find you at? Uh, plug and promote your stuff. Uh, just uh, over on Manic Expression still, and uh, 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 we are deep into production on the animated feature film that we've been working on for a while, and there should be some uh, news about that coming next month. All right, awesome. So yeah, so thank you so much for listening in to the Roald Dahl Retrospective. Tune in next time as we're not going to be talking about James and the Giant Peach. Yes, I know. I did find another obscure Roald Dahl adaptation. Help. But no, this time around we're going to go back to the corners of England because we're going to be talking about a BBC production. We're going to be talking about Roald Dahl's Little Red Riding Hood. So until then, my name is Aaron. My name is Patricia. And take care, and bye-bye for now. See you later.